Listen, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I don't know why, but I want to tell you something just for fun. So, you know, uh, to- this is totally off subject and random today. Whatever. It's just one of those days. Um, <clears throat> you know how, obviously, as parents, you know, obviously you have children because you love them, right? In other words, there's a desire to be parents and all that, too. Uh, but isn't it amazing how you get your little workforce out of it? And, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You get a little help around the house. But the truth is, let's, listen, let's let the truth be known. They make the mess. They clean up the mess, right? Man, I was looking for a witness right there, right? Anyways. So, listen, the other day, um, my son, I think he was watching TV or whatever, and and uh, I told him to get up and sweep the floor where they where they ate and got chips all in the floor, and uh, and and he he brought amongst uh, in the midst of great revelation. He said this. He said, he, of course he's pouting. He said, Dad, I don't understand it. The Bible says that God said is free, and all you do is make us work. <laughs> oh yeah, make us. That's what he said. He said he said God said is free, and you make us slaves again. That's what he said. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, touch his little heart. Anyways, it was kind of funny. We were in worship today, and, and I actually remember when, when Pastor Brian, I think Caden was like three, I asked him to, to babysit Caden for a day, right? And I figured if Christy and Josiah and all those guys survived, he could handle one more, right? So anyways, I get sent a picture. You remember this? I get sent a picture with my son, three years old, like this on the ground with a hose pipe. He was washing a car. I was like, only Brian Carl would babysit and make the kid wash his car. Anyways, but. No, he was having fun. Anyways, all right, listen. uh, Kind of as we said, at this time of the year, really in the midst of all the festivities, uh, we all know the believers all around the world begin to turn their attention to uh, one of the greatest miracles that's ever happened, and that's the birth or the advent of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I take a step back and, and I fully turn my attention towards him, uh, I can't help but to stand in awe of how God uh, lay aside his glory, laid aside his divine rights, so that he can not only just appear to us as a man, but so that he could come and walk and live among us. To me, that's one of the, the greatest revelations that there is. In fact, if you look at all other religions, we have the only one that the God came and lived among us. Amen. So, listen, I personally like the way that Galatians 4.4 uh, puts it. It says this, and it'll be up on the screen. It says, but when the fullness, can somebody say fullness? It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. We know that's Mary, born under the law. Get that. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why did he do that? It says to redeem those. Somebody turn to your neighbor and say, redeem us says, who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. What an awesome verse, right? Yeah. Uh, listen, I, you know, when I read that, I, I can't help but to think about how uh, exciting the atmosphere must have been. And then maybe this is just me, but how exciting the atmosphere must have been the day when the Father leaned over to the Holy Spirit and leaned over to Jesus and just simply said, it's time. Do you get that? When I read that, that I think about men that, that you, you know, just for example, here we'll just kind of blue sky for a minute. Um, 
We know that Jesus fulfilled 322 prophecies in the New Testament that were found in the Old Testament. And so there had to be a time where, where literally as these prophecies were spoken, that almost like the Father was checking the boxes. Am I making sense to you? To know, okay, the, the last one was spoken, that, that it was already predestined for him to f- fulfill. And at that moment, that's when he leaned over and said, it's time. And, and to me, I don't know, I, just, I can just see heaven just being super excited. God's going to get his kids back. You know, how awesome is that, right? So anyway, so this morning, um, I, I want to hit the rewind button so we can look back at a prophecy that was given 600 years before Jesus was born, almost 600 years. And then I want us to fast forward to the fulfillment of that prophecy that's in Matthew chapter 2. If you're with me, say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. Lord, I thank you. Uh, maybe first and foremost, God, for every person that's here. Lord, I thank you for how uh, just special each person is in this room. God, there's amazing people in this room. Lord, you have such great plans and purpose for their lives. And Lord, you... Uh, desire to walk with us all in such an intimate way. And so, Lord, today, uh, we just thank you for coming and just revealing to us through your word. Maybe it's a, a word of encouragement. Maybe it's a word that challenges us. God, it, you know, we're all in different spots. But, Lord, we just ask today that you would come and help us to open up our hearts wide. Help us to open our eyes wide, our ears wide, and our hearts wide. God, just receive from you today. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the anointing. We thank you for the anointing. We thank you for the anointing to come and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Listen, in, in 586 B.C., long before Jesus was born, the Babylonian um, Empire successfully overwhelmed and conquered the city of Jerusalem. Now, watch this. The Babylonian king, who we all know as Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he did what most conquerors did in his day. He completely destroyed the walls of the city. He looted the palaces and, and the holy places. And we know they tortured the men that resisted him. And then he did what all the other guys did. He set up his own government in that place that he conquered. But, but unlike other kings, and this is relevant today, so hang with me here. But unlike other kings, Nebuchadnezzar recognized the power of education and educated men. And here's what he did that was so different than other conquering kings. Once he actually uh, went in and conquered a nation, he would actually go and select basically the ones that the people that were the brightest and showed the most potential. And what he did was is he selected them and then he relocated them, he relocated them to the Babylonian um, capital. So watch this. When he had them there, he placed them in a school or a university kind of environment. And his purpose in selecting these brilliant people was to do this. Is he, was, he wanted to gather knowledge from astronomy, astrology, science, metaphysics, philosophy, and religion. And here's what he was looking for. He was looking for any kind of information, any wisdom that these group of people could give him in order to do what? To advise him as king. It's actually a pretty brilliant plan, in my opinion. Wouldn't you all say so? You all with me today? So listen, biblical history tells us this, that one of the best and brightest young men from Judah was Daniel. We know that from the Bible, right? And after several encounters with Nebuchadnezzar, he became a favored wise man. He became a trusted advisor, and eventually he became a high-ranking official in the Babylonian government. And as most of us know, that not only did he become this high-ranking official, but he also became a powerful prophet. And a prophet is simply this. If that's a new term to you, the word prophet simply means one who lends his voice to another. So he became a man that was in that, in that kingdom as one who spoke for the Lord. That when he spoke, it was God using him simply as a messenger. 
And so what happened was, is here's this guy, this powerful prophet. He actually predicted the rise and fall of the next four empires of the world with astounding accuracy. Do you get that? He spoke literally hundreds of years in advance of, of, of what would happen of literally in the order of which kingdom would be in place. And so here's where the prophecies or that prophecy collides with what we know as the Christmas story. Watch this. Among Daniel's prophecies, he declared this in Daniel 9, if you're taking notes, that the, the uh, Persian Empire would eventually overtake Babylon. And the new Persian king, in other words, the guy that came and, and overthrew Babylon, the guy that set up his reign, that he would grant the nation of Judah permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar came and tore him down. And here's Daniel prophesying that this, that this uh, nation is going to come in. And he actually said the time that they would, that they would come and that they would uh, wipe out the Babylonian Empire and that they would set up reign. And, and once they did that, watch this, that the king of that nation, of the, of, the, of the Persian army, of the Persian nation, would give Judah permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So watch this. So here's Daniel. He prophesies this nation's going to come and take over. And then he gives a time limit and says, and here's when that king is going to grant permission for the walls to be rebuilt. Watch this. And he said this. This is what's so powerful. And from that day when that uh, permission is given, you can mark it. 483 years later, the Messiah will come. Pretty amazing, yeah? And so... Anyways, the, the prophecy unfolded just as Daniel said, because it wasn't Daniel talking, it was God talking, right? And, and the Persian Empire, they came in, they defeated the Babylonian Empire, and right on track in Nehemiah chapter 2, on March the 5th, 444 B.C., Nehemiah asked and was given permission, and the Persian king let him go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Watch this. And, and from that moment, once again, that was a year to date, boom, it was on spot, the clock began to tick. The messianic countdown began. Are you following me? So what happens is, is this, is if you, if you uh, look back at history, theologians believe this, that the, that the school of wise men, of which Daniel was a member of, which he t- that those guys, they took great care to chart out and write down for future generations the heavens and the stars, hoping to determine uh, the future by the constellations. And to, to spare you a lot of scientific, you know, just chit-chat, uh, basically here's what happened, is with what, uh, what Daniel prophetically saw as far as uh, from the Lord was in, in, in correlation to what was there in the stars. And they actually wrote it down to let it know to be a sign that when you see this, you'll know the Messiah is born. Y'all follow me? So what happened is, is, is it means this, that 483 Jewish lunar years, that's key, Jewish lunar years, after this event, any serious student would basically know that, guess what, if they believe that prophetic word, that they need to be looking for the Messiah. Are y'all following me today? I don't know if I'm being clear enough. So watch this. And uh, what's so amazing is, is when we find Matthew chapter 2, it records that a group of these magi or these wise men from the east, these guys were actually remnants of the old Babylonian and Persian, Persian schools of wise men that Daniel was a part of. Wow, huh? So what happens is, is here's these guys, not only a part of the school, but they also had access to all the charts that Daniel and those guys wrote. And so what happens is, is because they were guys that obviously were studying all in that world, uh, they were actually looking, because they knew the 483 years, they were actually looking for and ultimately saw what they knew to be by Daniel's writing, simply that that is his star. 
is his star in the sky. And once again, you know, we only can say that it's an unexplainable supernatural phenomenon, which they interpreted as a sign to be the birth of the king of the Jews. And the reason is, is here's people that study stars. Something had to shift so they actually noticed it and saw it. Are you all following me? So, listen, we aren't told uh, how many wise men they were. I know we always uh, see three, and, and obviously what we see as a Christmas story is, isn't really accurate all the time. But, but uh, they assumed three because there was three gifts. But, but the Bible doesn't really tell us how many wise men they were. But here's what is important, that after these guys witnessed this sign, they decided to set out on the expedition and following the star to find the great king of the Jews. Now, doing so, they actually fulfilled a prophecy that's found in Isaiah 60, chapter th- I mean, verse 3. Isaiah 60, verse 3. It says this. It says, the Gentiles, because these guys weren't Jews. The Gentiles shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, here's what's amazing. It, it is said that they traveled over 750 miles doing this. Of literally seeing a star in the sky. They followed a star for 750 miles across the Arabian desert. As this thing literally moved and brought them to Jerusalem. And so, you know, some people say that that happened, uh, you know, maybe in a few weeks. Some people believe it maybe took them months. But uh, I believe that when you, when you sit back and you actually look at the account of Jesus' story of his life, that there's a chance from the moment that they saw the star, prepared for their expedition, because there had to be preparation involved, and they started traveling, that it was somewhere in between one and two years that it took for them to actually get to where Jesus was at. So let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. If you're there, say, oh, yeah. I gave you a whole lot of time to find it. <laughs> it says this. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea or Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. It says, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews. It says, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. I love that. We've come to worship him. Now, I want you to notice Herod's response here. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Can somebody say troubled? It says, and all of Jerusalem with him. Let's hit the pause button, and I want to show you what troubled means. Trouble actually means this. It means that when they came and they said, hey, we're here to find the king of the Jews, it actually means that he was agitated, that he was stirred up, that he was anxious, that he was distressed. And I like this last part there. It says that he was literally struck in his spirit with fear and with dread. So you ask the question, why was he struck in his spirit with fear and dread? Why was Herod troubled? Here's the reason. He was troubled because he knew he was the illegitimate king of the Jews. That, you see, uh, Herod was not a Jewish man himself, but he was married to a Jewish woman. And because he was married to a Jewish woman, the Roman Empire put him uh, over that portion of Jerusalem as the ruler. He, he was allowed to rule, not because of him, but necessarily because his wife gave him a right to do that. So, anyways, but here's what's so wild. When, when these guys showed up, uh, Herod was almost 70 years old. And he had almost been leading, uh, you know, Jerusalem for 37 years. But what's so funny is, is when you look back that this guy who's been in leadership for over 30-something years, uh, he, he literally sat not only on the stolen throne, but because he had a stolen throne, he was literally driven mad because of the paranoia of that. And, and he led through fear, and he led through jealousy, he led through hatred, and he led through anger. And to actually kind of show you how paranoid and afraid this guy was, uh, it is actually said that once he was put in power, that he literally guarded this stolen title, King of the Jews, uh, so ferociously that he even 
had his own wife and three of his sons killed uh, because he, he saw them basically as, a, as a, a political threat to his rule. And what's so wild is, is when he, uh, the three kids that he killed, it said that two of them were his favorites. So this was a man, once again, you're talking about fear and anger and, and jealousy. I mean, it, it, was, it was ferocious how he guarded his position. In fact, uh, it's written that Caesar Augustus uh, is quoted saying this. Another man recorded, he heard uh, uh, Caesar say this, and he wrote it down. But it says this, and it'll be up here, that when he heard, when, when Caesar heard that Herod, uh, king of the Jews, had ordered boys in Syria under the age of two years to be put to death. We know that's the next chapter in the Bible. And it says, and that the king's son was among those killed. He said this, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. It's crazy, huh? So watch this. So kind of when you keep all that in mind and to say that Herod was just kind of troubled, right, when the wise men showed up at his doorstep asking where they could find the legitimate king of the Jews, uh, it might be a touch of an understatement, right? Now look back at verse 4. It says, And when he, Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. Now, listen, at face value, I think I read that, you know, I think a lot of people read that and they think this, that it appears like Herod is somehow trying to help the wise men answer this question that they're looking for. Uh, but the truth is, and the wise men didn't know this, that Herod actually hated the priest and the scribes. And not only did he hate them, they hated him. And, you know, here he is, this guy, he's uh, running around trying to pretend like he's a Jew. And, and he, you know, said, okay, I won't eat pork because Jews don't eat pork. I won't eat a pig. And that's why Caesar kind of made that statement about him. Uh, but not only that, he built this beautiful temple for him. But what he would do is he taxed him so much, he actually used that money and gave to basically the, uh, the, the, basically the enemy. Okay, we'll say it that way, the other gods. Okay? And what he did was, even though he built this temple, he always selected these corrupt priests to rule in positions of authority. And so these people that were kind of underneath him, they were bitter because of all of that. Because he used his position, he basically was a hypocrite in it, to act like he was something that he wasn't. You follow me? So watch this. The, the truth is here is that Herod uh, wasn't trying to help the wise men. He was trying to help himself. And the reason he was trying to help himself was because this, is he was trying to figure out where this Messiah was at, where this potential threat was at for this one, because he was guarding his throne so much. And he was hoping that they could somehow give him an advantage so he could come up with a plan. And we ultimately know so he could kill, so he could murder uh, the king of the Jews, which was obviously a child, right, at the time. So verse 5. We're just trying to give you kind of a layout of the scripture, and then we'll, then we'll get practical here at the end. So verse 5 says, And they, talking about the priest, said to him, Herod, and, and this is basically how they answered. They said, Where is he born? And they go, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. They begin to quote Micah 5, 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Here's what's so wild as I studied these 12 verses over the past uh, few days. When I got to these two verses, I, w- I couldn't help but to notice how um, underwhelming and a lack of response that the chief priests and the scribes had concerning their Messiah appearing. Isn't that amazing? That in other words, there, there's no record here that these guys were eager or longing for the Messiah to appear. There's nothing showing that they were excited about hearing the news. You think they would be, right? And, and there's nothing there that says that they wanted to join the wise men on their journey. Are you all following me today? 
And so, listen, it would appear that these guys were so deep in their religion and unbelief. They were so, uh, you know, committed to pursuing their rituals and their traditions that they were literally unmoved by the slightest bit that what? That Micah's prophecy might be fulfilled. So I personally believe this, and this is the reason I'm kind of saying this, is I personally believe this shows how it's possible for a person to know the scriptures from an intellectual point of view, but be left utterly uh, unmoved by them in their own heart. In other words, it's really easy to do this. It's really easy to uh, attend a church. It's really easy to, to read the Bible and all that. But, but it, it's, all, it's all easy to do it from here and not from here. And that's what these guys had because their heart wasn't engaged. In other words, there's a more, you know, kind of assuming here, but I'm sure we're probably pretty right, that these guys were more caught up in being known as men of God in the town and what it could benefit them that they totally missed of who he really was in the middle of it. And so uh, I, I kind of have another thought for you, and then we'll, then we'll get moving and get practical. But um, as I studied this, I couldn't help but to compare just as I was reading, to compare uh, Herod's response to the news that the Messiah was born to the priests and the scribes' response to the Messiah being born. And I want to show you just a thought. I, you can throw it up there. I just said this. It's a sad day when the Herods of this world are more concerned about Jesus than those who say that they love him. I think that, and not, you know, not here throwing a punch this morning, but, but I think that can be said very strong about our nation right now. Amen. You know, if you really look at the the landscape, the landscape of our nation, you have people that have more zeal against the kingdom of God than those who should have zeal for the kingdom of God advancing. In other words, you have you have one group of people that are trying to they have they have more zeal to squash him than the other ones have zeal to make him known. About the only way I can say that. Am I making sense to you guys? And the truth is, 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 is the Herods of this world are really winning. They don't ultimately win, but it sure does feel like they're winning at the moment, right? Because anytime anybody mentions Jesus, they just they squash them and, 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 and basically say they're ignorant and dumb and all of that. And uh, the last time I checked, we have the mind of Christ, so that don't really make me too dumb, does it? Soapbox moment. All right, verse 7. Here we go. All right, let's get practical. It says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, or he had a private meeting with these guys, he determined from, determined from them what time the star appeared. And that's how we know the, that he got the idea of it being uh, less than two years. Okay? And it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. Notice he's not saying baby, but the child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Everybody say, That's a lie. All right, verse 9. It says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east. In other words, watch this. Kind of get the, get the miraculous of this moment, that they saw this star, followed it 750 miles over Jerusalem, and disappeared. They had this moment with these guys, right, with Herod, and then with the scribes and the priests, and then they set out their journey, and the star reappears and begins to lead them to where Jesus was. And listen, I'll go ahead and kind of say this. In my mind, I, I literally asked the Lord, I said, Lord, what, why, did, why did they even have to go there? Why didn't you bypass these guys? And, of course, the answer that quickly came back was so prophecy could be fulfilled because it was already spoken uh, in the Old Testament of things that had to be done. And we know that in Jeremiah it talks about the mothers crying out for their children. And obviously that's kind of what took place there. But it also revealed the spiritual landscape of when Jesus came at the same time, Right? So anyway, so uh, let's go back. It says that uh, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. It says when they saw the star, they rejoiced 
with exceedingly great joy. It says, and when they had come into the house, and so just a thought, not a manger. So that means Joseph at this time has still decided to stay in Bethlehem for whatever reason, and he commandeered a house, right? And they're living there. And then it says, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. It says, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One more thing just from information's sake. I'm sure most of you guys in this room know that those gifts held great significance, in in other words, in the Bible, okay? And the reason is because each one of those gifts speaks to some particular part of Jesus' life and his ministry. And so just real fast, we'll go through this. Gold was a gift for a king. It also represents deity, and deity basically means this, that divine. In other words, he's God, okay? And so when they came and they presented this gift of gold, it was uh, indicated that these men recognized that he was the son of God. He was the king of kings, that that's who they were worshiping, that it wasn't just a child, but they knew the significance of who he really was. The next gift was frankincense. Frankincense is actually a gift that was made for priests. The gift of frankincense was part of that uh, specific compound perfume that they would use in tabernacle worship, which actually represented this in Old Testament tabernacle worship, the rare riches and fragrance of the presence of the Lord. And so what happens is, is here's these guys, these wise men, they, they simply just knew that the child in whose presence that they were kneeling in uh, was indeed the very fragrance of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? That he was the very fragrance of heaven. And the last one there, myrrh. Myrrh was actually a gift that was given to someone who was about to die. And so we all know that Jesus is the only person that's ever been born that was born to, born to die. And so, anyways, the gift of myrrh represents suffering. Now, remember what the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 3. It says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It always says. It also says in uh, 53, verse 12, it says, who poured out his soul unto death. And so, when here these guys are, you've got to understand the significance of the moment. They weren't just given some kind of gift, some random thing, but there was meaning behind it. And so, what it was is that the, these gifts that the wise men... They were simply doing this. They were acknowledging that Jesus was the true king, that he was the perfect high priest, and in the end, he was the great savior of all men. Amen? Amen. All right. Last verse, just so we can kind of finish the story up here. It says, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Awesome. There's enough background. All right. Let's get practical. Um, So the past few days, I've been asking the Holy Spirit... Uh, Holy Spirit, what do you want us to learn from this? Is there any lessons that we can look into the lives of these wise men and, and do two things? Either, number one, it can encourage us where we're at, or secondly, it maybe would challenge us where we're at. And so, you know, it could be a variety of things, or it could just be good information for us today. But, but here's the, the few things that uh, resonated in my own heart, just as I studied, just as I prayed. And, and they're super practical, but I hope they give life to you in some way today. Number one is this. There's seven things that we can learn from the wise men. Number one, I'm going to go fast. Number one, they weren't satisfied with knowledge. These guys weren't satisfied with knowledge. They were some of the, the smartest men on the planet, but they weren't satisfied with, with just, uh, I'll say it this way, they weren't satisfied with just seeing a sign. They weren't just satisfied with seeing a star and knowing from a chart and a prophecy that that's what that meant. So, you know, when we look back and it says that they showed up in Jerusalem and they said, Where is he who, who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star, knowledge, in the east, and we have come 750 miles to worship him. 
To understand that they weren't satisfied once again seeing the sign. They wanted to see him face to face. And there comes a difference, watch this guys, I think for all of us in this room, that, that we can obtain great biblical knowledge, but at the end of the day, do we want to see him face to face? Do we want to encounter him? Do we want to experience him? Because what happens is, is like with these guys, is because they weren't satisfied just with knowledge, that, that basically the desire to encounter him, it turned their faith into a courageous action. Because you can believe it, but somehow with, with the word uh, faith, faith always produces action on our part. Amen. And so, you know, to think about this and, um, you know, this is assumption. OK, uh, but but to think for a minute that 750 miles traveling across the Arabian desert was easy. Hold up. Are, are you following me? So, 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 you know, here's this idea that guess what? That if we want to be people that uh, aren't just satisfied with knowledge, but if we want to really encounter him, go ahead and mark it off. It's not going to be easy. There's going, there's going to be tough times. There's going to be issues. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations. There's going to be uh, times where you can't find water. <laughs> right? Lord, where are you at? There's going to be those times, but if we want to uh, encounter him, then we've got to be willing to go for it. Right? Okay? It's going to take courage to do it. Number two, this is super easy, and it kind of ties in with the first one. But these guys, these wise men, they were committed to a long haul. They were committed to the long haul. And, uh, you know, for the past two weeks, we talked about communion with the Holy Spirit. We talked about waiting on the Holy Spirit. So kind of with that in mind, uh, you know, I think these guys realize, man, this isn't a short sprint. That if we're really going to encounter him, we've got to be committed to the long haul, right? So, so, you know, whatever, kind of a random thing. You know, if my life is here and I want my life to be over there and I want to look like this, I want to be different, I've got to be committed with God for the long haul that it's going to be different, Yes. So, so what happens is that so many times we go, we go like this. I want to be changed. God, do this in my life. And then three days later, God, why are you not doing it? <laughs> right. We go this. God, change our church. God, do it. Two weeks later. Why are you not doing it, God? Got to be committed to the long haul. If you're going to if you're going to change a culture anywhere, if it's inside of you or outside of you, you got to be committed to the long haul. Amen. You have to be. OK, it's, it's so, you know, you know, let me maybe let me maybe say this. It doesn't matter if it's at your job. It doesn't matter if it's in your marriage. It doesn't matter if it's with your kids. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. All of that is going to require a great amount of patience, persistence, endurance and perseverance. I think, honestly, when I look at these guys, it's probably the number one thing that I see, man, that these guys have perseverance Amen. That they have perseverance to go. You know what, God, we're, 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 you know, once again, we see that star, but we're, we want to see you and we're willing to do really whatever it takes to get to you. So number three, this is more important than I think we like to recognize. But number three is they didn't travel alone. And, and it's this, you, you know, I've been a Christian for almost 20 years now, and I think more so now than ever I realize the importance of having people alongside of you that are running in the same direction. And I have to admit to you, it is hard to find those people. Truth? It's really hard to find. In other words, if you're going to be passionate, if you're going to desire God with everything, if you're going to want to be committed to the long haul, if you're not going to be satisfied with just knowledge but you want him, it's hard to find those people. But here's these guys. They recognize the importance of having some traveling partners in life with them that was going to help them get there. And, and I love the fact that, that at the end of the day, they didn't just worship God by themselves. They worshiped him all together. There's this community uh, that's there that wanted to encounter him.
Number four is they weren't deterred or discouraged by those around them. They weren't deterred or discouraged by those around them. And here's kind of what I mean by that is sometimes the will of God will require us to bump into the Herods and the priests and the scribes of this world. And what I mean is this, is we're going to bump into those that hate him and those who are uninterested in him. Have you ever been around people and people say they're Christians and it's almost like if Jesus walked in the room, they wouldn't even know that he was there? We're going to bump in those people. But what here's so wild about this is, believe it or not, I really believe that God uses those kind of people in our lives to help us fulfill our destiny. In other words, that some, you know, once again, how God does his thing, but they had to come across those guys to fulfill their destiny. And, and there's a reason. I don't know what they gain from, what they learn from is just completely on God's side. But there's those people that's going to be in our lives that somehow are going to be sandpaper for us. Amen. They're going to be sandpaper for us. They're going to be people that's going to challenge us in a lot of ways, challenge the way we think. And, uh, you, you know, here, here I even kind of give it to you like this. Um, you, you know, have, have, you, have you ever been talking to someone about Jesus, been witnessing to them, and they come back with a rebuttal that absolutely just stumps you? Fun, huh? So what happens is, and you actually go, oh, that's pretty smart on their behalf. That was pretty good. And obviously, they're wrong, because Jesus is the answer, right? We know that. But there's somewhere in that that it makes us re, re, you know, re-enter back into the prayer closet. Jesus, show me. And that person ultimately helps you get better and more equipped to fulfill your destiny in life. Am I making sense? There's something about, um, you, you know, recently I, I, was, I was reading, listening to something I can't remember. And I heard this guy talk about how he had been praying, God, help me love people. Oh, no, it was, it was, uh, it was Dr. Lynn's book. He, he was going, God, help me love people. Help me love people. Help me love people the way you love them. And then these people came in his life, and, and he just hated them. <sighs> and he's like, God, what? He with the prayer God, what's these people's problem? What's da, 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 da? And the Lord spoke to him. He said, you said that you wanted to love people like I love them. Because, and so here's this guy in general tell you, probably one of the most loving guys you'll ever be around. But here's this thing that he had to go through to get to where he is today. Anyways, hopefully I'm making sense to you. But, uh, you know, there's kind of this thought, and I'll just kind of say it like this, is that these guys didn't stop short because they encountered difficult people. Watch this. How many people have we seen that have pulled themselves away from the body of Christ because they encountered a difficult person in the body of Christ? Listen, just because you're saved doesn't mean that you're perfect. Right? Even this morning, I was over here praying, pacing right here. Jesus, help me look beyond the dirt and see the gold. Because nobody's perfect, right? Not not even us. You you know, listen, it it is a challenge even to love us sometimes, right? So don't say nothing. Don't say nothing. So, (laughs) but there's something about, listen, about not, in other words, that when you, it's kind of like this. When God spoke to you, told you to be a part of a church, to be a part of a group of people, to be accountable, to be in fellowship, all those things, that that just because you ran to a hypocrite along the way doesn't mean you exit. You stay the course of what Jesus said, and you keep running. Amen? Amen. All right. Number five. Number five. When they came into Jesus' presence, they bowed low. So here's what we can learn. They were humble. And these guys, literally, when they came into the house, they knelt down before the Lord. That it showed humility on their part. And uh, Because there's a part that if you're going to do all these things that we're talking about, there's got to be humility in your heart. Amen? 
So here's what, here's what actually it means to kneel before the Lord. I'll just throw it up to kind of give you the idea of what they were doing. It's a person who bends his knee in acknowledgement of God's authority. It's an action that expresses honor, respect, and worship. Expresses honor, respect, and worship. To kind of give you a picture, though, of the revelation that these guys were walking in. Has anybody in this room, listen, there's not a person in this room at some point in your life, more than likely, that hasn't come to a point where Jesus' presence was so strong in a room, in the room, that there was a position in your own heart from worship, that you recognized his, his authority, and you honored him, and, and you, you know, basically you just worshiped him. But can you imagine the difference of doing that with God in, in the presence and then going, okay, I'm going to walk up to a two-year-old and I'm going to kneel, with, kneel before him in that demeanor. That's the kind of revelation that they had. Are, are you all following me today? And so it, it's kind of in this sense. Let me maybe say it this way because we're talking about them being humble. They hear some of the, once again, the, the most brilliant people on the planet and they could come and humble themselves before a child. So there's this idea that we don't ever get to, right? I'm amazed about how many people in the church world think that they can walk into church and because they got a little bit of knowledge, God's used them in some way, that now they're floating on a different level than everybody else. We're all still just people. Amen? That, that there's a sense that we're all still called to be humble and to bow before him. Amen? Number six. Number six is they gave him their best. This is huge. They gave him their best. Uh, the Bible says in one, that one translation that they opened their treasure chest. And, you know, which means that they gave meaningful gifts. We'd all agree with that, right? In other words, is this. I don't, I don't have any beef with the dollar store, okay? But, but these guys didn't go to the dollar store and bring something from the dollar store. Oh, God, we honor you. You know, that there was something that, you know, and it's believed that these guys were obviously uh, well-to-do people, that they were, that they were uh, wealthy people. But they brought from their, their, their own wealth, and they honored him extravagantly. Are you follow me today? So here's kind of the idea, though, when I see this, that they open their treasure chest. They open their treasure. The Bible says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in my mind, these guys were not just open up, okay, here's a piece of gold, here's some frankincense, here's some myrrh. These guys were going, no, King Jesus, here's my heart. Here it is. And they were laying it all out there, and they wanted to give him, once again, their best. And, and there's, this, there's just this picture as they poured out their best, or they poured out their hearts, once again, in worship to him. And, you know, and I say this all the time, but there is no uh, greater form of worship than just giving him our lives. Amen. I mean, listen, I, I, I grant worship is singing. Definitely. There's a part of interacting with him, lifting our hands, shouting, dancing, all those things that the Bible says, clapping our hands and raising our voice. All of that is forms of worship. But there's something about when we wake up every day and not on Sunday, but every day and say, God, today, my life's worship to you. Are you with me? It's kind of like this, that if you're, you know, a carpenter, a mechanic, what, you know, whatever you are in the room, whatever you do, that you're doing that is unto worship unto the Lord. Because it's the life, it's the gifts, it's the abilities that he's given you, and you do that to honor him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Where are we at? Number seven. Last one. We're almost done. Number seven. Is they finished? They finished. How simple is that? I mean, we're taking a round trip here, but they, these guys, they, they finished. They finished. They finished. They finished. They finished strong. You know, to kind of give you a, a quote, I read this the other day by Smith Wigglesworth. 
He said this. He said, a common mistake today is to think that everything ought to be done in a tremendous hurry. You don't really finish in a hurry, do you? You don't. If you want to finish well, you don't. He says this. He says, with God, it is not so. He said, God takes plenty of time, and he has a wonderful way of developing things as he goes along. So true. He says, nothing that you undertake will fail if only you do not forget what he has told you. You get that. Everybody listen to that. That nothing that you undertake will fail if only you do not forget what he has told you and if you act upon it. There's something about when the Lord speaks to you that that thing remains your compass. And you keep following that compass like those guys followed that star. And you say, you know what, I'm going to finish and I'm going to finish well. And I love the fact that not only did they, you know, respond to the Lord and answer the call to get there, but they also answered the call on the way back. Right? Because the the Lord came and spoke to him and said, look, don't go that way because Herod's up to this. And so, you know, that even there's that side of going this, that, man, they they were willing to protect the king of kings. Amen. And and not just whatever, extra thought, extra note, this is free. But that there comes a time in our lifestyles and the way we live that we protect him. That we protect his fame, that we protect his name, we protect his reputation. That's why we don't live like the world. Amen. It's, it's not it's not because, you know, that's religious and that's what. No, no, no. Listen, it's because once again, from a purity of heart, I want to live holy and blameless before him. And if I live holy and blameless before him, guess what? I live holy and blameless before other people. Doesn't mean I won't ever make a mistake, but my intent is to honor him and to protect his name. Are you all with me today? Yes. No. All right. Let's close our eyes. I just want to pray for you today. Father, I just ask today that you would take this uh, really simple message, these really simple truths, and Lord, that you would just encourage, God, your kids. Lord, I ask today, God, that uh, wherever we're at, God, in this season, not just of the Christmas holidays, but this season of life, Lord, that you would come and you would just speak to our hearts today, God, with such clarity, that, Lord, that we would know that we would know that we would know, God, if there's any of those Uh, seven or even that bonus round number eight any of those things that you would desire to speak to us lord that you would just speak really loud and clear but lord help us to not just hear today god help us to be doers of your word god help us to uh, hear it then obey and live it out And lord the truth is is when we live out what you tell us uh lord there's such a great reward in it and the reward's really just you uh, God, there is no greater reward than walking with you and knowing you. So, Father, today, just thanks for uh, doing what only you can do in our hearts. Thank you for shifting what you need to shift. And thank you for encouraging what you need to encourage so we can keep moving forward. And, God, our hearts are, God, we just want to finish and we want to finish well. God, that we declare to you today, God, that we're committed to the long haul to walk with you and to serve you, God, so we can bring you honor and so we can bring you fame and glory so we can know you, God, in deeper ways. In Jesus' name, amen.